All right, we're going to continue on, obviously, in our survey of church history, and um, I'm going to just kind of briefly talk through this timeline, not spend a lot of time there, but uh, I'll kind of show it to us next week, and we'll spend a little more time maybe looking more closely at it. But as we've been talking about, we've been looking at, obviously, the book of Acts as the first 30 years of the history of the church. And of course, the, the sort of the linchpin moment that launches everything there in Acts is found in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost. And we dated that, uh, that time period of, of A.D. 30. And so just progressing forward and kind of doing a jet tour over where we've gone so far in Acts and the time span that we've covered... Um, when you get to around AD 32, and these dates are uh, obviously good approximations. They're not, you can't be too dogmatic about all of these dates. Some of them, we have some good uh, historical date markers that give us some certainty, but then there's others that you have to kind of you know, say about this time or around this time. So around AD 32, so about two years after Pentecost, is when you arrive at this event uh, where Stephen this disciple and this uh, deacon, this one of the seven that was chosen to serve the church, was uh, stoned, was put to death, and he becomes the first martyr of this new um, Christian church, this new Christian movement. And so you have this seminal event there in AD 32 that, that is, um, leads to a greater intensity of persecution uh, by the, by the uh, unbelieving Jews. Um, and, and that and persecution is obviously led or spearheaded by, by Saul, the Apostle Paul eventually, but at the time Saul. Um, you have, though, as a result of this persecution, you have the spread of the gospel to Samaria. So again, according to the commission of Christ before his ascension, um, he said that you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. And so this, this persecution, while it was intense and while it was uh, in many ways unjust, and while it was uh, difficult, it also was part of God's providential plan because it scattered the believers in Jerusalem and they spread out from there. And, uh, and we have this testimony of, of the gospel going uh, initially to Samaria um, and beyond, of course. We also have, during this time period, the conversion of Saul uh, on the road to Damascus. And, of course, that, that sort of sets off this uh, sort of um, parallel narrative that begins to take on steam as you move further through Acts where you see the, <clears throat> the ministry of, of the Apostle Paul and his missionary endeavors uh, get underway um, uh, further down the road. But that conversion um, experience takes place around this same period in AD 32. We move forward uh, about six or so years um, to this next sort of major event. Again, plenty of things to talk about in between these time periods, so don't don't hear me trying to pass over other important matters that uh, occurred, other important historical events that Luke records for us. But when you get to AD, around AD 38 to AD 40, you have this tremendous uh, um, event that takes place where Peter uh, takes the gospel to Cornelius, and you have the Holy Spirit coming upon Gentiles in the same way that the Holy Spirit came upon the Jewish believers at Pentecost. So you have this this affirmation of God's purpose to bring in the Gentiles by the bringing of his spirit to them and in the, in the uh, context of Cornelius' uh, reception of the gospel and his household is baptized and the Holy Spirit comes. And then you have Peter's subsequent report um, to the, the elders and leaders in Jerusalem and they are just stunned by this, and they have nothing else to do but to affirm that God has put his seal upon this, this gospel witness uh, to the Gentiles. 
So that's a, a seminal moment in the, in the movement of the church, the growth and expansion of the church. Then you get to about A.D. 42 to 45. Again, just think about the time span. We start in A.D. 30, so we're moving out now uh, to about 12 or so years. About A.D. 45, A.D. 42 to 45, you have the church beginning to grow and expand in Antioch. Remember, there's this transition where Jerusalem and this Judaistic-centric type of church that begins to expand to the Gentiles, and you have this growing, predominantly Gentile church in Antioch, and that that begins to become established, and and really the growth there explodes. You have the ministry of Barnabas as a pastor that's sent up from Jerusalem there that takes place during this time period. Barnabas subsequently goes and gets Paul um, and brings him back from his home, and, and Paul and Barnabas minister there in Antioch for a period of time. Uh, subsequent to that, between about AD 46 and 47, you have Paul and Barnabas going on the, what's called the first missionary journey of the Apostle Paul, um, where they take the gospel to Asia Minor, um, which is also understood or known as the Galatian region. And you, we understand from Galatians, that's, that's the churches in that region that the Apostle Paul writes to to deal with this, this uh, really the Galatian heresy, this controversy over the gospel um, that we'll talk about a little bit more in just a moment. That's AD 46 to 47. So now we're sort of 16 to 17 years out from the uh, coming of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost. So you're talking about a span of time that passes. This is why I like to kind of go back and review these time periods, these time frames, because, you know, you can read over 20 years of history in a very short period of time, and you feel like, well, that didn't take long. But the fact of the matter is, is that time's passing, uh, work is being done, the gospel is gradually going out. It's not to say that the gospel hadn't already maybe possibly reached to some extent these regions, because we know that the scattering of the church at at the point of persecution in AD 32 You had Jewish believers who had come from all over the place, including these regions in Asia Minor. So it's possible that there was already some gospel witness there um, that preceded Paul and Barnabas. Probably likely is a better way to to put it. Um, But certainly the the testimony and work of Paul and Barnabas in this region uh, brought about tremendous expansion of the kingdom of God through the, the witness of the gospel in this area. And you're talking about about 16 or 17 years after Pentecost. You get to about AD 49, and this is that seminal moment of the Jerusalem Council where you have the, um, the Judaizers, those who would um, expect for uh, Gentile believers to also be circumcised and to adopt and adhere to the law of Moses. In other words, there's salvation through Christ plus Judaism was what was necessary, was what was required. And of course, the Apostle Paul deals with this very explicitly and very aggressively even in Galatians, and we looked at some of that context as well. But this reaches a fever pitch in about AD 49. So, I mean, you're looking at close to 20 years after the, the Pentecost where uh, this, this, this basic this heresy, this gospel plus kind of heresy um, that is circulating um, and really bringing some corruptive belief and practice amongst uh, the believers there and confusion for sure at minimum. Um, so this is taken up as a matter in Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas come to Jerusalem and take up this matter of the gospel. And so that, that is where we kind of left off in our last study a few weeks ago, where we walked through the Jerusalem Council. We, we looked at the dispute over the nature of the gospel. What is the gospel? Um, what is, how is one brought to 
uh, salvation and, re- and reconciled to God through Christ. And, and so we, we, we dealt with the dispute there. We, talk, we looked at the debate and how intense the debate was. Um, this was no small little disagreement. This was a very intense um, debate um, that, that, that was undertaken. Uh, we also talked about the decision that was uh, arrived at, and this resulted in a letter that was drafted. Uh, James is the one that recommended this letter, and the letter was drafted and then taken by Paul and Barnabas uh, initially back to Antioch. And so that's where we kind of left off, but we're talking about close to 20 years after Pentecost where you have all these different events that are taking place, and you know, we have the, the benefit and the advantage of looking at this in hindsight and really the, the advantage of seeing this unfold um, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and the pen of Luke, seeing how the movement and work of God to, to accomplish his sovereign purpose and what he had, he had uh, talked about through the prophets, all of this is sort of coming to pass um, over this period of time. And, and we're getting to kind of witness it through the writing of Luke here in, in Acts. Well, that leads us to where we are now, and we're going to kind of take this up today, um, this, this second missionary journey. Um, but it, it, we'll, we'll talk about some of the elements of that, but I want to kind of just run through the timeline, and then we'll come back to uh, some, some elements of Paul and Paul's second missionary journey. But this is about 80, 50 to 52, uh, where the second uh, journey is undertaken. Um, you have a split that we'll talk about between Paul and Barnabas uh, over John Mark, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. Um, you also have this during this time period where the Apostle Paul writes the Thessalonian letters. So you see now the, Paul beginning to write and communicate truth and doctrine and practice and, and, and probably responding also to communication and inquiry and questions that had come to him uh, from these churches. You see the his, his ministry under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of writing uh, gets underway. Although he had already written Galatians by now, he wrote Galatians uh, right after, probably right after the, the, um, the Jerusalem Council, probably in around AD 49. And so that's when that sort of doctrinal correction uh, in the form of that letter was probably written and sent. But now during the second missionary journey, um, we start seeing him to uh, begin to write and begin to shepherd through writing, if you will, uh, for example, the Thessalonian letters during this, this second missionary journey is when they're written. Um, beyond that, though, we'll come back to this in more detail in just a moment. You have AD 53 to 56, so there's a very short period of time between the first missionary journey and the second missionary journey. So between around AD 53 and AD 56, you have Paul going on a, a second journey. Um, and that's also the time period in which he writes the Corinthian letters as well as the, the Romans, the letter to Romans. Um, that's, that's taking place on the third missionary journey. Uh, beyond that, you have in AD 56 to AD 58, you have Paul's arrest in Jerusalem. Um, it's kind of, you're sort of coming to the end of Luke's record here. It's just kind of coming to a, a close uh, after the third missionary journey where Paul's arrested in Jerusalem, falsely accused. Uh, we'll talk about this as we, as we kind of get to that in the, in the, in the flow of the text. Um, He's put on trial before Roman, the Roman governors Felix, and then subsequent to Felix, Festus, and then King Agrippa. Um, he ultimately uh, requests to be, have a hearing before, um, before the emperor in Rome, and so he, he ends up uh, making that journey to Rome uh, around A.D. 59 to A.D. 60. Perilous journey, you have this detailed description that Luke gives us of the shipwreck that takes place while he's sailing 
to uh, Rome. But his intent all along after the third missionary journey was to get to Rome. That's where he was headed. And so, um, so he, he leverages his, his uh, position as a, as a citizen of Rome to make an appeal um, before the emperor. And so he eventually, after a number of years, um, that journey takes place around AD 59 to AD 60. And we're kind of left off uh, in AD 60 to 62 at the end of Acts where Paul is under house arrest in Rome. Uh, this is really a, a, his first imprisonment. Um, this is a different imprisonment than the one that's written about, for example, in his pastoral epistles in Timoth- to Timothy. Uh, the conditions are much different. He's, he's got some freedom of movement. People can come visit him. There's still ministry going on while he's in Rome. So he's basically under house arrest, not under a, an imprisonment that ultimately leads to his martyrdom. Um, and this is also where he writes what is known as the prison epistles, uh, from this, this initial imprisonment in Rome, Ephesians, Philippians, Philemon, and Colossians. Now, there is, this is where the, the writing of Luke breaks and ends, basically. Luke's probably writing this sometime around, you know, early AD 60s. So he's writing sort of up to current events, if you will, and he, he leaves off the narrative there with Paul under house arrest in Rome. There is, so though, some... Um, some other source material that we can look to to ascertain some additional um, ministry of the Apostle Paul. It's sometimes considered or referred to the fourth missionary journey of, of Paul. It's not the same kind of, of uh, scale and scope and all, but it, it's, it's, it's additional ministry um, around AD 62 to AD 66 is the time frame. And we'll talk about that uh, down the way a little bit, but I wanted to just kind of give you that additional marker that we'll that will sort of jump, be our jumping off point um, out of Acts and uh, into other historical material as well as drawing from the New Testament as well. So that's just kind of a run-through of the timeline. So you're talking about this time period that covers or spans uh, 30 years, 30-plus years, and uh, we get to see a lot that takes place in the spread of the gospel. We see these, these recurring um, characteristics that... that um, are something that takes place over and over again where the gospel is taken to the Jews and then it's taken to the Gentiles. So it starts in the synagogue and then it get, goes to the Gentiles. Uh, many, Jew, some Jews believe, many reject. Um, some, Gentiles believe, uh, um, some Gentiles reject, many more Gentiles seem to be believing. So the ratio is kind of a little bit inverted there, though we don't have specific numbers to sort of you know, calculate that out in particular. That's just kind of the, the indication you get from the writing of Luke. Um, you have this constant... Uh, travail of persecution and, and slander and false accusation and obstacle and over and over and over again. And what's striking as we start to move into the second missionary journey is the Apostle Paul, even though during the first missionary journey, he went through tremendous turmoil. He was even almost stoned to death in Lystra. I mean, he, he, was, he came within inches of his life, if you want to look at it that way. Um, was the subject of false accusation and slander uh, and over and over and over again. And yet his heart was to go back to those same places on his second missionary journey. And um, we'll talk about that uh, now. So the second missionary journey, um, we'll kind of dive a little bit deeper into this for a few minutes here. And then we're going to take, take up a, a more significant portion of it um, next week as well. 
But you find his second missionary journey in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 through chapter 18, verse 22. That's the sort of the, the context of it in Acts. And really you have this interesting and I think very important and insightful, helpful prelude to the missionary journey. Um, it's, a, it's, it's, it's a bit heartbreaking in, in a sense, but it's also, like I said, very informative, very insightful, uh, I think very helpful. This prelude really is, you could sort of subtitle the prelude to the second missionary journey, When Brothers Disagree, because that's what happens with Paul and Barnabas. Now, you, you, I'm sure many of you, if not all of you, have experienced the kind of relationship and fellowship bond that occurs when you lock arms together with someone in some intensive work, right? You, you, you have a certain bonding that takes place. Even on a, a more surface and even a more uh, temporal level, you might have had to be involved in a very intensive project at work with a few other people. And you've had to work long hours, and it's been sort of a very intensive, maybe ups and downs and difficulties and things you had to figure out and things that didn't seem like they were going to go right. And all of a sudden, you get to the other end of this project, whatever it is, and, all, and you realize that you've established this kind of this unique bond with these people that you've worked on this project with. Well, imagine this same kind of bond that developed between Paul and Barnabas as they were setting out to fulfill what God had called them to. And we see there, before they go on their first missionary journey, where the Holy Spirit confirms them to be sent out, and the church actually affirms them and commissions them to be sent out. There's a, there's a sense of spiritual calling from God. There's a commissioning of the church, the local church there in Antioch, to send them out. And they go out and have this this unbelievable experience together, seeing the amazing work of God through signs and wonders, through people who are totally, where the gospel message or anything monotheistic even was foreign to them, and God redeeming them and bringing them to faith in Christ and to salvation, and and seeing people healed, and and all the things that they experienced, and and the, and the, the difficulty of travel, um, the, the deprivation that they probably experienced in some of the travail of their, of their journey, and of course the persecution, um, the fact that they had to be, be bonded together sort of against their opponents, and at times their aggressive opponents and their life-threatening opponents. So you, ha- you can only kind of, or it's, it's not difficult, I think, to imagine that the bond that Paul and Barnabas had was significant. It was intense. It was through the, the, the trial and travail and joy and triumph of that first missionary journey. But then they come to this place before they set out to go on their second journey, and you see this disagreement. And it's a disagreement over John Mark. John Mark is Barnabas' cousin who was with them for a very brief time, as you recall, on the first missionary journey. But it, it, it appears that the, the, the journey was too difficult for him, uh, probably an immature and certainly immature in the faith. Um, and, and so he, John Mark, abandoned the mission um, and, and basically went back home. And so because of that, when they began to, to uh, initiate this second missionary journey, the Apostle Paul approaches Barnabas about this and they're planning to go. Barnabas wants to take John Mark with them. Paul does not. Paul does not believe that that's a wise idea. And they have 
what the scripture calls, what Luke tells us, is a strong disagreement. Let's look at this together. Look at the end of Acts chapter 15, starting in verse 36. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. Now Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought best not to take them, not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. So there's an indication there that there was a, a, a bit of a, a failure on the part of John Mark. It wasn't just that he had some situation that legitimately took him off the journey. Um, there was a, there was a, a, a bit of a, a weakness uh, of character there that, that seems to be indicated here. And it says that in verse 39, and there arose a sharp disagreement, so sharp so that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord, and he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So you have this this pivotal moment, this prelude to the journey where you have these brothers you might call them in military terms brothers in arms, if you will, in this, in this war of the faith, right? And, and they disagree sharply over this, this next mission endeavor and whether or not to take John Mark. So it's a, it's a, it's a tremendous example to us, though, because um, there, is, there is some things to kind of glean from this, this event. Luke records this for us, um, and I think that there's great insight that we can gain from just kind of thinking about this for a moment. When you look at the Apostle Paul, and you think about what we know, sort of the profile of Paul, even going back before his conversion, what, what, how would you describe Paul, just in general terms? Temperament, personality. Zealous. For God's Zealous. This is a man who, in terms of persecuting the church, I mean, he even described himself. I was, I was, his zeal was sort of type A, if you want to call it that. Like it was on fire zeal. So that, that, in other words, that's how he's made up. Now, how would you characterize Barnabas? Known as the son of encouragement? Probably a a, a more patient, tempered kind of individual. I mean, you can kind of infer some things about that kind of temperament. So you have these two brothers and... Neither one of them are sort of superior to the other in in the fundamental sense of the term. But they differ over this this decision. And they differ based upon their own unique perspective, the, the, the way that God has wired them to see things, their own sort of temperament is probably influencing their decision. Of course, Barnabas being, you know, a relative of, of, excuse me, uh, uh, John Mark being a relative of Barnabas, maybe he knows him better and, and has you know, something that, some insight there that, that maybe Paul doesn't have. Maybe Paul's just thinking about you know, what's going to be most effective. We can't be held up. This is the gospel. We've got to get this done. I mean, you, you can just kind of begin to infer what was sort of fueling some of this, this disagreement. And, and Luke, I think, is really... Um, helpful in that he, he, he presents this to us in a fairly objective way. Okay? In other words, he doesn't present this to us and say, 
you know, Barnabas really blew it here because he disagreed with Paul. And he, you know, this, this really shouldn't, I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't render some type of editorial opinion on the disagreement. He just basically records it as a point of fact. And I think it raises an important point for us that, that brothers can and do disagree over matters that don't necessarily call for a complete and permanent separation of fellowship. We see them, sort of that, that, sort of that fellowship restored. We see the Apostle Paul in Corinthians referring to Barnabas uh, as a faithful worker in the Lord. We see him toward the end of his life calling for John Mark to be brought to him in Rome because he's been so useful to him. So we know that this, this breach, this, this disagreement, di- did not go to the core of who they were and their view of one another. It was a disagreement over ministry strategy, basically. That's what the fundamental disagreement was. It was a disagreement over, over who would be the right person for the right position, if you will. But it wasn't a disagreement at a core level, and it wasn't a disagreement certainly over doctrine. So they, they part ways. I want to commend to you, I think it's a sermon uh, by John Piper called Barnabas, the Weakness of a Great Leader. And I, got, I've got, I have some summary points here from this, but it's really, I think, helpful for us to think about. And I would, I would encourage you to, to maybe search for this sermon and read the whole thing. It's really, it's really good. But he, he basically draws these points out of this example of Barnabas and Paul. His first point is this, that great saints go astray he uses sons of thunder and sons of encouragement. And we do have some indication uh, that, that, it was, um, uh, that Barnabas was, um, ba- again, you, you, some of this is, is inference, but some of this is inference from the text. You know, you have Barnabas as being identified as a son of encouragement, as, as an encourager. Um, you, you also know that Barnabas was kind of caught up in this Galatian controversy along with Peter. Uh, we saw this in Galatians where Barnabas sort of got led into this separating himself from uh, the Gentile believers there in Antioch and kind of got sucked into this whole thing. Um, you, you, it's possible that he uh, was um, overly optimistic about John Mark and where he was, but... but it's possible, too, that the Apostle Paul was maybe a little bit too strident in not giving John Mark another opportunity to continue to grow. You don't, you don't know for sure. The point is, is that, is that there's, there's possibility or opportunity for godly people to sort of go astray in matters and to, and to, and to divide over particular issues. His second point is that the ministry is made up of many judgment calls, and we will have to learn to disagree on some things without rancor or bitterness or resentment. Um, this is such a huge uh, point for us in our day and time because people do not know how to disagree uh, intelligibly, uh, with grace, with a recognition that we disagree, but we aren't necessarily enemies. We just disagree. That's kind of where it needs to end. And this can happen in the context of ministry, certainly when it comes to making judgment calls over issues of preference or a certain sort of instinct about a, a particular person or direction that is not so... I can't, I can't say that I'm pointing to some major portion of Scripture that supports my, my opinion on this, I just, but I do feel strongly about it. It's a point of what I, what I believe to be wisdom 
here. And, but there is judgment calls that have to be made, and we should be able to disagree over matters without it being a rancorous, bitter, resentful kind of experience. Well, I think at the core, it's pride. Yeah. I mean, I you know. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, the thing, the fact of the matter is, is that when we when we're when we're articulating a certain opinion, especially if it, we're articulating a strong opinion, we really think we're right. I mean, it, right? I mean, otherwise, why why go to all the trouble? Unless you're, I, I'm kind of wired. Sometimes this is really bad. I don't advocate this. If there are any children listening, this is nothing to model uh, at all. But but I I sometimes think that I enjoy the sport of debate. And so I might not even be that committed to a particular position or whatever, but I'll stay in it because I just enjoy the sport of it a little bit. So that's, and, and in the context of, I mean, that's not always a good thing. Um, but the fact of the matter is most of the time when we believe firmly about something, we're convinced of something, we just, we think we're right. And so it's not just a matter of us, well, you know, respectfully disagreeing. It's that you're wrong, I'm right, and you need to change your ways, my friend. It's just, and, and that really that's where that really taps into our just our pride uh, about wanting to be right, but not just wanting to be right in our own eyes, but wanting everybody to think we're right and to agree with the fact that we're right. So I think that that's probably what's at the core when we when we press our disagreements beyond what is um, sort of appropriate, uh, expected, and um, and can ultimately be proved to be fruitful. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, I, I said this in my prayer, we find this in Proverbs, iron does sharpen iron, and that, that indicates that there's, there's a, a, a grinding effect that goes on, right? There's, there's, there's tension, there's resistance. I don't know about you guys, but I, I grow and learn and, and, and have my own understanding of things sharpened and refined when people kind of disagree and come at me. That's, that's how it's always worked for me. And so if I become resistant to that, then I'm basically... I'm basically shutting down the very means by which we, we grow and are sharpened by other people. And, and really just the, all the metaphors we have in terms of the body of Christ and the interdependency that we should be recognizing and fostering and all that. So um, but that's what I would say. I think that, I think that we, the, the air that we breathe in our culture feeds this as well. Um, and, I, and I just think that we, we have to be... This is one of those things where... Um, we, we, it's easy for us to be sort of lulled into a certain passiveness as, a result, as it relates to the effects of our culture on us. Um, we, but we, I think we, the more we sort of are exposed to the rancorous kinds of disagreement that you see in the media, you know, on your news programs, in the political sphere, it's... it's it's very difficult to not begin to imbibe some of that um, as well. And that, become, that can become a point of just feeding our pride. And, it's, you know, I mean, all I know is that last time I checked, anywhere you look in Scripture and it's talking about the wiles of Satan and the work of the enemy, I mean, he's very crafty. He's very gifted at deception. Very, very talented at that. And so it seems right to us. It seems like us being right and us putting forward our right opinion is the right thing to do. It's a just cause. So it's all that, I think, that kind of gets mixed together and other things, too, that we could probably identify. 
Um, it requires, I think, a degree of just wise humility to just adopt a posture that says, I don't, I, why do I think I have to win every argument and win every battle? I mean, what, who am I? I mean, what, who do I think I am? You know, I mean, if I just compare myself to Christ, who was reviled and rejected and spat upon and did not return evil for evil, what? What am I doing? So I just think that um, that we just we are we are we are obviously constantly battling our pride. We're constantly influenced by the culture around us. Um, we think we're right, and oftentimes we can confuse what is a matter of. This is probably another big one. We we elevate preference to doctrinal principle or to truth based principle when it should just stay in the realm of preference. We do that quite often, I think. Um, anyway, just some thoughts off the top of my head about that. Yeah. Yeah, you know, I kind of wish we had more in this account to kind of guide us. Wouldn't that be good? How we think about this, because you know, there's other aspects of well, submitting to one another. I disagree with my brother, but because I love him and because I love the Lord, and He calls me to submit, I'm going to submit to him. Yeah. You know, uh, even though I think it's wrong. Right. But then that's not what they did, and so I'm curious, like, what were their thoughts? Short term after this happened, about each other, you know, were they saying, "Lord, I just, you know, uh, this is a difficult situation. This is a difficult time. Um, you know, I clear, I clearly, I believe this is he's wrong." You know, what, what were their thoughts about each other? You know, uh, or are you going to discipline him on, on his time? You know, yeah, just, just kind of a curiosity, but just so that we can think about it for wisdom, for like, you know, when we go through these, because we're going, it's going to, we all experience this. Yeah. At point, we're going to have that. So how should we think about the other, other person at that time? And should I just submit, or should I? Yeah, I think, I think the real humble attitude would be to, to submit and to pray. And to pray that God would show either that person where he needs to reform or you where you need to reform. I have, you know, the humility to say, it could be me. You know, the Apostle Paul, he, you know, he had, was a great, wonderful life after, you know, his, his conversion. Here's a point which he probably regrets, right? There's another uh, point, you know, where he uh, he proclaimed uh, something against the chief priest, but you know, he got yeah, he got slapped for it, and uh, you know, and he repented right away. So you know, yeah. he wasn't, you know, didn't live this sinless life. That's right. You know, certain people will tell you. That's right. Let me give you a few more of these points um, from this, this sermon. I think they're, just, they're helpful in this regard. Um, uh, every strength has its corresponding weakness, and we are all vulnerable. So and we've, kind of, we've kind of been uh, teasing this out a little bit. I mean, you've, if, you are, if you are more oriented toward a um, patient, long-suffering, uh, encouraging kind of disposition, um, gifting, that kind of thing, there's vulnerability there that you could uh, grant more um, pathway to immaturity or to just sort of unwise deployment of resources or people or something like that. I mean, you could you could almost that the weakness side of that could could yield up some unfruitful decisions as you know as well. On the flip side, if you're sort of strong, get it done, type A. And again, I'm just kind of using these two kind of polar extremes. 
I mean, the, I think the obvious thing is you could run over people. You could not be patient. I mean, for example, I mean, this was proven out. John Mark proved to be useful to Paul so much so that he wanted him with him at the end. So, so his growth and maturity was not just something that is, uh, you know, a good idea for us to keep in mind with other people. It actually was validated by Paul himself. And so, to Phil's point, this might have been one of those points of regret that could be an inference you could take from that, that he might look back on it and go, I should have given this brother a chance. Yeah, you know, so, so anyway, I just think that, just recognizing that, that our strengths, we're vulnerable to weakness that flows out of what is normally our strengths, right? So we got to be very mindful of that on, on either side, no matter what the strength is, we got to be mindful of that. That's right. Yeah, he continued on in ministry. That's the other thing too. That's the other beauty of this. I mean, the ministry and the and the gospel witness continued on, and and so anyway, God's providence was gracious there too. Um, we need each other's strengths. We mustn't envy one another, but rather give thanks for God's wisdom. Uh, past experiences and past usefulness are no guarantee of future obedience. Successful Christian living is made of vigilance and constant prayer. In other words, just because something worked out a certain way in the past, and guys, we are very much inclined toward this, aren't we? If it was like this before, then this, is, this sets the precedent for me, and so it's going to be like this in the future. And when we start doing that with people, with brothers and sisters in the Lord, and we start putting them into some kind of box where maybe they dropped the ball, they failed, they let us down, maybe they've gone through a season of, of sort of unwise decision-making, or maybe they're just still, you know, they're immature in the faith, and then years later we've still got them in this same place because we're thinking that the past is the key to the knowing what the future is all the time. Uh, with people, that is a very, very precarious and even dangerous and potentially sinful uh, way to, to view situations like that. Um, and this is the great conclusion to his message. The cause of God will triumph through all the weaknesses and failures of his people. That's to Phil's point. Our defeats are temporary and the celebration of our enemies is brief. So just some good insights there. I would commend that message to you. But this, this prelude is just, to me, so helpful um, in thinking about uh, this issue of disagreeing amongst brothers. Um, quickly, the purpose of this journey... We see this uh, indicated in chapter 15, verse 36. It says, And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. One of the purposes was fellowship. I mean, he wanted to go and check in on these brothers. Interesting note is that his, his intent initially was just to go to those same churches in Asia Minor that he had previously visited on the first missionary journey and part of his intent was to go see how they are. So the, the priority of just of Christian fellowship. This is a, this, 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 the purpose of this mission as we flesh this out, it's really good for us to see and, and understand that the, the notions of itinerant type ministry, where you just sort of fly into a place and you kind of uncork your, your best message on someone and then you fly out, and they might cite the Apostle Paul as their... their testimony of that as not the case at all. The Apostle Paul wanted to go back and visit these believers just to see how they were doing. But it goes further than that. 
there was also this purpose of discipleship. So he wanted to go back and visit these churches for the purpose of discipleship. In chapter 15, verses 40 to 41, Paul chose Silas and departed, having been committed by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. So his intention was to go back through after he'd been through one time and go and and bring greater levels of discipleship and deepening of their faith. Uh, uh, Further, it says in chapter 16, verses 4 to 5, as they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for the observance the decision that had been reached by the apostles and the elders who were in Jerusalem. So this is the the decision from the Jerusalem council. So he's wanting to bring this this confirmation to them about the gospel, again, strengthening them and, and discipling them. It says, so the churches were strengthened in faith, and they increased in number daily. So this priority on discipleship, and it wasn't just discipleship that resulted in them knowing more and learning more. It's that their faith was deepened, and the effectiveness of their evangelistic ministry was widened. It was a, it was a combo plate, if you will. It was the, the, the fruit of discipleship was also evangelism, and more people coming to faith. And then a third purpose that we see is the purpose of leadership, leadership development. Or you could also think of of mentorship as well. In chapter 16, verses 1 to 3, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra, going right back to where he was almost stoned to death. Just a a great testimony of, of courage and faithfulness. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So part of the purpose of this second missionary journey was to go and strengthen the churches, but also to strengthen leadership and even to identify new leadership. And that's where he met up with Timothy for the first time. And clearly... He saw in Timothy great potential because he went to the point of circumcising him so there would be no obstacle, no sort of petty encumbrance to his effectiveness amongst Jews and Gentiles in the furtherance of the gospel. And of course we know uh, how Timothy became an effective pastor uh, in in Ephesus uh, down the road, but that's where he met up with Timothy. So this this important purpose of fellowship, of discipleship, and of leadership was on Paul's mind and on Paul's heart in the second missionary journey. Yep. I just have a question for you. I, I'm trying to reconcile this. You know, Paul took and circumcised Timothy, who had not been circumcised. His dad was a, was a Greek, right? And then the, and the next thing he says, as they went through the cities, they delivered to them for observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. Yeah. Well, was it one of them that circumcision is of no value? Yeah. Yeah, I think that that was probably just a, a, it was probably one of those sort of a stumbling block removal. It it wasn't, I I don't think that he, obviously I don't think that that was a, an act of of gospel necessity. It might have been because he was intending to bring him into the temple. Well, yeah, there's that too. Yeah. Yeah. Which is what they accused Paul of. That's right. That's why he was imprisoned at the end. I mean, the Jews accused him of that. So, yeah, I mean, that's another practical point. Um, it is kind of an irony there, though, isn't it? Right in the same section, you have the, uh, there's no need for circumcision, and yet, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, 
Just can I take a couple, another minute or two? Um, so we've got the purpose. Let's talk about providence here for just a moment. Um, you see God's providence come into play in a pretty significant way with the Macedonian call. Um, you, you find this in chapter 16, uh, verses 6 to 10. And they went through the region of uh, Phrygia and Galatia, having been in, uh, uh, forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. And when they had come to, up to Mysia, they attempted to go into Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So passing by Mysia, they went down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there, urging him and saying, Come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision immediately, we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Uh, this, this basically expanded the gospel into Europe. This was sort of the gateway to Europe and the gospel moving from Asia into Europe. And this is just the providence of God working in the, the, the ministry of the Apostle Paul to, to move him beyond what he had even originally planned or thought as his purpose. And so you have this, this great expansion of ministry, and we're going to talk about this quite a bit more next week. Um, and we see this, this providential work of God uh, taking the gospel over into um, the European continent and Macedonia. We'll look at the, the broader scope uh, compared, comparing the first and the second missionary journey. And then we'll dig a little bit into next week, uh, Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 gives us this great account of, of ministry there in Thessalonica, Berea, and Athens. That just is a, It's a great profile of, um, of gospel witness. Um, and, and so we're going to talk about some principles for gospel witness that we find in that, that great chapter uh, in Acts chapter 17. Well, it's almost 1020. Let me pray for us and we'll be dismissed.